Hello and welcome to Impressions of America. I'm Simon, and with me as always are Toby and Vaughn. Hi guys. Hi Simon. Hey Simon. Today I'm delighted to say that we are joined by a special guest. Patrick Lacroix is an author and historian and is a scholar of both US religious history and Franco-American history, and it's the former we'll be discussing today, and in particular his recently released book, John F. Kennedy and the Politics of Faith. Patrick, thanks so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Patrick, can you start us off by introducing your book to our audience? I'd love to. Love to. <laughs> uh, I'd love to. Thank you so much. Um, I appreciate that. So I started working on this book partly because there was a, a fairly large field of scholarship on the election of 1960 and the role of religion in that election, um, Kennedy being the prospective first Catholic president. Um, and only the second presidential nominee of a major party to be of the Catholic faith. Um, but what I wondered was whether anti-Catholic rhetoric, anti-Catholic sentiments, um, and anti-Catholicism as a political force actually died on November 8th, 1960. Um, so I wanted to explore that a little bit further. What happens to all those feelings, all that um, let's call it for what it is, bigotry and xenophobia, some of that ignorance that had been present for so many centuries, did it just suddenly evaporate um, in 1960 with the end of the election campaign and Kennedy's election? And it seemed that, um, you know, based on the existing literature, that suddenly the 1960s opened up on this era of peace and love, but also of widespread respect and tolerance and general interfaith amity. Uh, but as I started digging a little bit further, I found that that wasn't the case, that a lot of those impulses were rechanneled. So the book opens at this very moment, although it talks a little bit about the campaign of 1960 to set up the administration of Kennedy and the type of religious activism that occurred during his thousand days in office. I also push the story further into that administration to discuss where religious impulses in politics were redirected and how people continued to view Kennedy through a religious lens, through, again, the better part of his presidency. Uh, can you kind of get us up to speed on Kennedy prior to the 1960 and just kind of set the scene to, to who this, this person was prior to, to running for president? Oh, definitely. So Kennedy is the son of a, a very wealthy Massachusetts family, um, Irish Catholic on both sides, and... Um, his grandfather was part of the, um, I can't call it the Brahmin class of Boston, but the Irish Brahmin mm -hmm. uh, late certain class of Boston. Um, and so they were highly visible, prominent. Um, his father was an envoy to England, uh, not least towards the end of the depression. And as uh, the second world war really um, began um, getting underway uh, in Europe, uh, at the end of the 1930s and into the 1940s. Um, and of course, Joe Kennedy, John F. Kennedy's father, has been looked at through almost as, as close a lens as JFK himself. Um, and this was um, at one time a Hollywood mogul. He was very close to power brokers in Washington, which earned him this uh, position in England. Um, 
And Kennedy himself famously wrote about uh, the march to war in the 1930s and 1940s. On his return, he wasn't sure quite what to do uh, with his bright prospects. He was by then a decorated war veteran, had fought in the Pacific, and um, perhaps pushed by his father, likely pushed by his father. Um, at the tender age of 29, I think it was, uh, he might have been 28, he launched a, a campaign for the US Congress in Massachusetts, in the Massachusetts district, and he won. And that was the beginning of a fairly lengthy political career, although he died at the age of um, 46, if I recall correctly, um, the better part of his adult life was spent in politics, uh, first as a congressman from uh, uh, Boston district in Massachusetts, and then as a senator. He was elected to the US Senate in 1952 and 1958. And in Massachusetts, which had a very large Irish population, it had a large Franco-American population, a lot of other immigrant groups. Uh, his faith did not really um, raise any concerns. Um, he certainly wasn't the first Catholic senator from Massachusetts. But as he moved on to the national stage and he started, started setting his sights on national politics in 1956 and then 57, 58, 59, and started eyeing a presidential bid, we, we do notice that um, he became very, had to basically school himself and educate himself about the type of prejudice that existed in other parts of the country. Um, can you maybe set the scene a little bit with regards to Catholicism in the, the post-war period and kind of how America viewed Catholicism in, uh, in this post-war and um, early Cold War period and up to 1960 and what it was, I guess, like you know, for the world to then have a, a Catholic president in 1960? By the late 1940s, 1950s, uh, Roman Catholicism in the U.S. was in a somewhat paradoxical position. So at the height of the Cold War, Catholicism could assert itself as being this ultimate patriotic faith, partly because popes and bishops and priests had been warning against the dangers of communism um, in a fairly strident and very um, doctrinaire way for the better part of a century. So um, they could say, well, it's our time. And certainly the Cold War did help to burnish uh, Catholicism's patriotic uh, credentials, if you will, in America. At the same time, prior episodes of anti-Catholicism, which were tied to the foreignness of the religion, did not soon die away. And when I say foreignness, I'm referring to the fact that many of these, uh, uh, many Catholic groups in the US were in recent immigrant groups. Um, the Irish had by then acculturated to a great extent, but Italians, French Canadians, um, all sorts of other European groups, Poles notably. Um, so that anti-Catholic uh, anti rhetoric was tied in with a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment even if that was kind of brushed aside um, in, in public conversations uh, about Catholicism. And it was also foreign in a very different sense, in the sense that this was a religion seated in Rome. Um, and there was a large sense a lot, uh, across many Protestant uh, denominations in the US, a very large sense that uh, bishops and priests and by extension, Catholic lay people were taking their orders from Rome that they could not be uh, 
fairly patriotic Americans, so long as they maintain that connection to the papacy, to the Vatican. So that sentiment was quite uh, prevalent in many parts of the US. Um, and Paul Blanchard famously was a, a, an anti-Catholic polemicist who made a career out of this type of language about Catholicism being anti-democratic, anti-freedom, entirely opposed to American values of individualism and independence. And even though Blanchard himself was a fairly liberal Protestant, he certainly bought into that rhetoric. Um, and even though he might've been at odds with their values, um, he gained a lot of traction in Baptist communities and other groups that had historically been very concerned about encroachments against the separation of church and state in the US. Uh, could you tell me a little bit about Kennedy's own religious views because it it does seem like you know Kennedy was the flag waver of the the new Catholic president the the coming of the Irish Catholics into you know political majesty but does, was Kennedy particularly religious because it does seem that Kennedy you know although he was Catholic didn't really evoke much religious rhetoric or seem quite secular the whole idea of the Kennedy glamour and Camelot didn't really seem particularly religious. How, how religious was, was John F. Kennedy? That remains, unfortunately, an enduring mystery. So he did participate in the overt rituals of his faith. Um, he attended church faithfully um, and took part in the rites of his family's church. Um, in his lone year in office, or alone full year in office, 1962, um, he attended church uh, over 30 times. So more than once every two weeks, basically during the, the course of that year um, and very often on back-to-back -back weeks. So the fact is he did attend church. He was raised in a, a deeply Catholic household through his mother. Uh, <laughs> there's very clear indication that his father was not a deeply devoted faithful Catholic for all sorts of reasons. Um, although he did, Joe Kennedy, the father, did maintain very close ties to bishops, specifically Bishop Spellman, who became Cardinal Spellman in New York and Cardinal Cushing in Boston. Uh, but we suppose that he maintained those relationships mostly um, for political reasons and for the family's political benefit. But Rose Kennedy, JFK's mother, was deeply Catholic and we do know that uh, JFK himself briefly attended uh, a denominational Catholic school, um, which I think was either in Massachusetts or uh, Connecticut. But regardless, there is clear evidence that he, he took part in that community of faith. But I think your question had a lot to do with his actual values, his actual beliefs, and that's where the puzzle becomes a little bit more difficult to put together because we hear from his closest aide, uh, Ted Sorensen, that in fact, they never discussed his faith, his values from a religious standpoint at all. And Ted Sorensen wow. was basically Kennedy's alter ego. So he himself remained very tightly uh, tight-lipped about um, his faith and his relationship to God, the Almighty, to uh, supreme or eternal truths. Um, and in fact, there'd be, you know, I think that image, that aura of a secular president, 
um, was partly the making of those who came in his wake and um, close aides who were largely secular liberals like Ted Sorensen himself and Arthur Schlesinger, um, who were kind of the original Kennedy myth makers who didn't have much to make of religion in general and who just like Kennedy were sometimes purely irritated by the role of religious activism and how it could imperil the president's agenda. I'll just add very quickly as well that Jackie Kennedy, Jacqueline Kennedy, um, the president's wife, would later say that Kennedy himself went through the rituals so quickly. So he would say his prayers, but he'd just do so so quickly in a very formulaic way that she wondered if there was any depth to her husband's faith in the first mm. place. And it's and the way in which she puts it makes it seem as though they themselves never discussed his religious values or even hers. Um, so what I see in my research is a, a president, a person who is deeply skeptical of religious authority, who um, was a, a committed but very questioning Catholic um, who was not ready to follow his church in all, um, in all ways, and who understood that he had to be the president of all Americans. And that pluralistic approach often meant um, understanding that, that, there, that there are different ways of achieving truth, that he was not a dogmatic uh, Catholic per se. So all that to say that there are hints of what his values were, but the extent to which he gave any deep thought to specific tenets of Catholicism um, is still very much in the air. So would you say that given, given Kennedy's own relationship to the church, would you say that despite this, Catholics fell quickly, you know, towards the Democratic Party in, in, the, in the 1960 election, irrespective of possible misgivings about Kennedy's own Catholic faith? And was it, were this all Catholics? Yeah, so I would say that he certainly, uh, there was a lot of enthusiasm um, among Catholics for Kennedy's um, campaign, not least, again, partly because he was not only a Catholic, but he was the, the symbol of, you know, the opportunity of arriving socially, politically in America um, among ethnic groups. So it wasn't just Catholics um, and, you know, again, Irish, Italians, French Canadians, Poles, um, Jewish Americans as well embraced Kennedy partly for those reasons. Um, and some scholars have argued that he likely got a higher score among Jewish Americans than among his own fellow co-religionists, which I find really um, deeply interesting. So there was something more to Kennedy than simply his faith among people who were looking at that. Uh, but again, he it's likely that he got 80% of all Catholic voters in the US, which was huge. Um, and that was absolutely crucial to his victory because he had to make up for all the Protestants who had voted for the prior Democratic nominee, who was a president or who was a Protestant, uh, Adlai Stevenson, and who would never, never vote for a Catholic president. So those uh, Catholics were absolutely essential to his victory. Um, and of course, this is all happening at a time when he is basically checking all the boxes as a Catholic, including attending church services, attending mass, and uh, participating in the community life of the church. This is all before revelations about 
extramarital affairs um, and, you know, being wishy-washy, if you will, on civil rights, uh, that kind of moral equivocation. So truly, um, I think it's fair to say that um, to most Catholics in the U.S. in 1960, his faith was not a, a problem for them. Um, those Catholics who might have been reluctant to vote for Kennedy might have done so because he seemed too liberal in certain respects, or because their own family had a long tradition of voting for Republicans and who still were committed to the party of Eisenhower. Uh, just looking at the Democratic primary race then, um, did religion itself play much of a role in in that race, Kennedy won fairly comfortably in the end, um, but did religion come up and how did that then sort of shape the, the presidential election that, that followed? It certainly came up in two specific primaries. It came up in Wisconsin. Um, and at that point he was locked in a tight race for the democratic nomination with Hubert Humphrey from the neighboring state of Minnesota. And that meant that Hubert Humphrey already had a lead with local media markets, and he was able to leverage his knowledge of the upper Midwest and voter concerns towards that bid, towards a, a potential victory in those primaries. And it was significant partly because of the large Lutheran population in, uh, in Wisconsin. It wasn't sure, it wasn't clear how um, that population would turn during the primary. Um, ultimately, Kennedy squeaked by there. Um, what was more noticeable is in West Virginia. West Virginia had the smallest Catholic population of any state in the U.S. at that point. So that should have been a slam dunk for Humphrey or for a few of the other contenders, including Lyndon Johnson, who was also trying to keep his presidential hopes alive and who was a Southerner. So he could have easily made um, inroads in West Virginia, trying to capitalize on um, anti-Catholicism. But the reality is in West Virginia, most voters actually did not care deeply or were not deeply concerned about Kennedy's religion. So what we notice in 1960s that the states that have a very large Catholic population easily go for Kennedy. That's also true of the states that have a minimal Catholic population. Where, it's become, where it becomes more difficult for Kennedy to win voters over is in states where Catholics are maybe 25 to 40 or 50% of the population, because that means that they've already had political clout, political influence, and there have been battles already over, for instance, over gambling, over contraception, um, over you know, the, the attempts to enforce censorship um, through the church in those states to basically change laws in accord with the, the, the dogma of the Catholic Church. So in those kind of middling states in terms of Catholic population, there have been political battles that have antagonized Protestants. But that didn't happen in West Virginia, again, partly because the Catholic population was so small. So what we notice in 1960 is that to them, a Catholic is just a Protestant by a different name. They don't really care because they haven't had um, acute battles with their Catholic fellow citizens. So they really look at economic policy. And West Virginia is a state that already in 1960 was hurting because of the coal economy. Um, poverty was endemic. And Kennedy put his best foot forward there with his economic plan and economic policy. So with my book and with 
you know, a large body of work that's already uh, been accomplished on this. There's no doubt that religion was not necessarily the single defining issue of 1960, and there were other factors at play, and it's often very difficult to parse out, you know, how much economic policy versus religion played into the balance, or Cold War, Cold War fears versus civil rights and other factors. It's very hard to disentangle. So we have to look at qualitative evidence and how much some of these issues were discussed. Um, but ultimately, we see very little um, deep-seated, widespread anti-Catholic rhetoric coming out of West Virginia, which to a lot of people, again, is quite a surprise. In the book, you mention about Kennedy being able to use the Cold War and the, the fear of the, the godless East to sort of dampen the fears of, of him being Catholic. Could you maybe just uh, tell us a little bit about that? Oh, definitely. It's really interesting to see how in 1960, he's able to run against a Republican administration by essentially deeming it weak on, on defense, weak <laughs> on, you know, talking about the missile gap, notably, um, and saying that we're falling behind because of General Eisenhower and Nixon. And of course, we all know that. Those Eisenhower. famous doves. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, that's, that's really fascinating, but he's able, you're right, he's able to leverage Cold War rhetoric to say that this is a Judeo-Christian nation. We are fighting against the atheistic East, the Eastern Bloc, um, materialistic, atheistic, revolutionary communism. Um, and we're all in this together, that we're actually, despite uh, again, small dogmatic or, um, you know, differences in doctrine, mm -hmm. uh, Protestants, Christians, and Jews, um, and we might have added Eastern Orthodox people and people of other faiths, you know, we're locked in this common battle against communism. So he certainly uses that, that rhetoric to minimize differences between uh, he and his opponents and other Americans from a religious uh, standpoint. Um, and he's as much a cold warrior as Nixon in this era. Um, he supports in the 1950s DM, um, or maybe we should say Nuo in, in Vietnam, and supports all sorts of other operations around the world asserting uh, American military might. So he's very much a traditional cold warrior. Uh, I would say just as much as Nixon was. Um, and I think that helps to bolster his claims about a, an inclusive nation that, regardless of its uh, own religious inclinations, is inspired by those religious inclinations to continue the battle for freedom, um, not least freedom of religion. Can you tell us a little bit about Kennedy's speech at the Greater Houston Ministerial Association in September 1960 and why that has been seen to be sort of historically important? Certainly. So it bears to, to, we should remember that the reality is he had spoken about um, the issue of faith in the campaign um, earlier that year. So this was not the first statement mm -hmm. he issued surrounding his faith. So he had, um, in spite of himself, really, he, he did not want to discuss religion at all, um, partly for political reasons. Um, he felt that the more that politics, or sorry, the more that religion came up in politics, the more that would undermine his campaign. But he was also genuinely uninterested about parsing out 
ideological differences from a religious standpoint um, or trying to, to broach alliances. And he was actually quite irritated by the behavior of certain Catholic bishops during the campaign who showed preference for Nixon, uh, Spellman being one of them. So I won't say that he was dragged kicking and screaming to <laughs> Houston, um, but he, he was not relishing the opportunity necessarily. I mean, in fact, he had to bring in uh, into his campaign um, James Wine, uh, who was then associated with the National Council of Churches. And the National Council of Churches was a mainline Protestant umbrella organization that brought together a bunch of different denominations. Um, and James Wine was basically there to coach him on relating to American Protestants and their fears and their concerns. And Wine served as a mediator and a spokesperson when it came to approaching Protestant, uh, uh, Protestant denominations. And he also brought on, more, on board very momentarily to help with his speech, John Cogley. John Cogley was associated with Commonweal, which is kind of, uh, today it's mostly left of center, but a, a Catholic periodical um, edited and generally uh, supported by lay Catholics. So both of these men, Wine and Cogley, were moderates. And again, they were there to coach and guide the president's remarks. So we have to, we can't take these remarks necessarily as being um, Kennedy's own, you know, deep-seated uh, ideas about faith or something he had to get off his chest for who knows how many months or how many years. Uh, this was very calculated. Um, and in fact, they understood that political gains could be made of this. And the video of him making these remarks, um, I guess we can call it the film because in that day, it was literally film. It was circulated all around the country, specifically by the Kennedy campaign, because they felt that it had been so impactful and so well received by people in the actual room in which he said that his faith would have no bearing um, on his politics and that he would not take orders from Rome, just as the people in the room would not take orders from their own local pastor, their own Protestant pastor. Um, and again, there was, I guess we could call it a bit of patriotic bluster, the fact that he had served his country honorably in the South Pacific, uh, the fact that he had taken the oath of office many times before, one very similar to that of the presidency when he was um, admitted to Congress and then elected to the Senate. So all these statements were meant to reassert kind of what the Catholic Church was doing at the same time, reassert his patriotic credentials and show that he was able to divorce the commandments, the dogma of his church, and any orders the bishops might want to um, impose upon him from his duty, his responsibility. And he would be um, criticized mostly, quite maybe paradoxically, by his own church, because for a lot of leaders uh, of his own church, bishops like Spellman, they felt that he was going too far in terms of divorcing faith and the role of Catholicism from public, the public square in general, from American politics. Uh, that was a huge issue, and it became more so after the election, as they actually fought some religious battles um, in, in, in politics. Um, but remarkably, again, this speech was fairly well received, and he was able to appease a lot of fears and concerns, and it's not clear exactly how many people he won over, whether, you know, that video was able to, he was able through that video to 
make inroads politically, um, but it certainly asserted uh, his own place as an American statesman who was not blindly following the orders of his church. And the fact that he would make these remarks publicly and put himself out there on record um, spoke volumes for a lot of people about his character and his independence. Why do you think Richard Nixon didn't go after Kennedy's Catholicism really hard? I know you've, you've touched on it, but Kennedy seemed to have two weaknesses. One, he was a Catholic and, you know, Al Smith famously had lost, been rejected roundly by the, the population because of Catholicism only a generation ago. And, and two, he wasn't seen with even within the Catholic Church you know, by, by cardinals like Spellman, people like Peel is, is not as being, you know, a strong enough Catholic maybe to, to garner their support on, on you know, uh, religious issues. So why do you think Nixon doesn't go after him really hard on, on this? I think there was a sincere sense in the Nixon campaign that um, religion could serve as a third rail for them as well. That is to say for the Republican campaign, um, at a time when you have a growing middle class, Americans and especially um, historic ethnic groups are moving up in American society. There is suburbanization, they're moving out geographically and they're moving up socially and economically. Um, many of these groups are Catholics and many of these groups would be tempted to, um, to support Nixon uh, because the the support for the Democratic ticket in 1960 among Catholics is not something we can take for granted. Eisenhower, the Republican, had won a majority of Catholics twice in 1952 oh, wow. and 1956. Yeah, um, of course, at that time, it was two Protestants running against each other. Um, and even though Catholics had historically supported Democrats a little bit more, um, Eisenhower, partly due to those social forces and the larger context of the Cold War is able to seize um, a majority of, of Catholic voters. So Nixon is trying to hold on to these, uh, these people. Um, and he's very cautious. And there are people like uh, Billy Graham and Norman Vincent Peale and formal and informal advisors who are trying to push him in that direction that you just indicated of going after Kennedy and whether he is a sincere um, American, or sorry, a sincere, well, yeah, a sincere American, I guess, a pa patriotic American, um, but that would have been such an easy narrative to, to challenge uh, Kennedy, you know, is a war hero, uh, much more so than <laughs> Nixon ever was, even though Nixon was briefly in the Navy as well. Um, and, you know, Kennedy is this, uh, this charming, um, uh, popular, well-spoken, a uh, person who served in Congress for 14 years, who is a dedicated Cold Warrior, who is concerned about the, the supposed missile gap between the two, between the USSR and the US. So I'm not sure that those attacks, and I think that Nixon would have realized that at the time, would have been particularly fruitful for his campaign. And in fact, Nixon, just like Kennedy has Protestant advisors, including Sorensen and James Wine, uh, Nixon is advised by one Catholic, a Catholic, a Republican Catholic, um, a priest by the name of uh, John Cronin. Um, and uh, Stephen Kep has done like really amazing work on, on the relationship. And so Nixon is, seems to um, 
through Father Cronin seems to try to reach out to Catholics as well and to make other arguments. Instead of saying Kennedy is an unpatriotic American due to his faith or cannot properly uh, commit to his oath of office, his strategy seems to be actually the complete opposite. Um, even though he gives a wink and a nod to distribution of anti-Catholic literature, uh, which he'll formally condemn, but is still done by Republican allies. Uh, the reality is he's trying to keep uh, those Catholic voters and to win them over by talking about the Cold War as well and economic issues. Um, I was just, before I ask my next question, I'd just like to state that it's official policy of this podcast that Nixon is very much a war hero, but I'll just put that to one side. Uh, <laughs> I stand corrected. Fair enough. <laughs> Uh, Kennedy embellished his war record. <laughs> <laughs> You're a historian, but you don't know this. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's that's how we see it anyway. Uh, I was going, I was going to uh, bring up that in, in the book you mentioned that um, the Protestant and Catholic voting blocs weren't necessarily sort of monolithic in, in the way that they broke down, and you had sort of divisions between like mainland Protestants and evangelicals. And you had, you know, maybe more liberal um, Protestants would kind of stick closer with Kennedy and that kind of thing. I was wondering if you could maybe break down um, that sort of um, what you mentioned in the book as far as it not being kind of monolithic between a, a Protestant voting bloc and a Catholic voting bloc. Right. Overwhelmingly, um, people, and here we kind of get into the weeds of labels, um, and I'm not sure we, you know, even if this podcast was three hours, I'm not sure we'd be able to break <laughs> these down sufficiently. Um, you know, labels like evangelical and fundamentalist and what those terms mean in an American context. But uh, groups that we would associate with American Protestant fundamentalism are entirely committed um, to the Republican ticket. Um, now, granted, in the South, this is very complicated partly because historically the Democratic Party in some states is a party of white supremacy. It is the party of white evangelical American Protestants. So in certain states, it does become very difficult and some people hold their nose or they vote for a third party candidate or they'll vote for Nixon at the top of the ticket and then continue to vote Democratic further down the ballot. Um, but overwhelmingly, the, the intelligentsia um, and the clerical leadership of these evangelical fundamentalist Protestant denominations are on, you know, the Republican side and tend to follow people like Norman Vincent Peale, who is <laughs> a northerner and kind of liberal in certain respects, and the same with uh, Paul Blanchard. Uh, there are also mainline Protestants, and mainline Protestants are associated with a more hierarchical, um, traditional, more ritualistic churches in the States, um, some branches of Lutheranism, um, the Protestant Episcopal Church, which is a rough equivalent of the Anglican Church elsewhere, um, uh, some branches of Presbyterianism, some branches of Methodism, uh, congregationalists as well. So those are all historically um, mainline or liberal churches. And that's where Kennedy gets most, if not nearly all of his Protestant support. And in fact, there are a lot of Protestant figures who are 
all in with Kennedy from the beginning. So again, this is not a strict Catholic versus Protestant uh, battle. You have people like Reinhold Niebuhr, the famous theologian, um, John Courtney Bennett, who was also at Union Theological, uh, Union, uh, Theological College, um, and, and people uh, of kind of their ideological family, James Wine, people associated with the National Council of Churches and the World Council of Churches, who again are all in and at two crucial moments in the campaign in the spring while Kennedy is moving through the primaries and in the fall after the Houston address, these individuals will publish long public letters that are widely disseminated across uh, the US in which they clearly state, um, and again, these some of these people um, are actually paid by the Kennedy campaign and they're Kennedy- um, They weren't the only ones. Just... No, that's right. <laughs> well, <they> had, <laughs> yes, exactly. They had deep coffers, uh, a pretty big uh, political war chest. So, so point taken, you're absolutely right there. Um, but their Protestantism, their whatever their specific values might be, uh, religious values, they don't see that as being an obstacle and they don't see Kennedy as being problematic from the standpoint of upholding the constitution of the United States and being able to fulfill his oath while being Catholic, uh, while being a good Catholic, a faithful Catholic. So again, at those two crucial moments, mainline Protestants will, I won't say come to his rescue, but certainly issue very strong statements to, uh, by extension, to their flock, to their, their church members saying, this is not a problem. We live in a pluralistic nation and we can take John F. Kennedy at his word. Um, and they warn against the danger of religious tests as Kennedy himself does before um, the clergymen assembled in Houston. Uh, and again, as we've explored already, Catholics um, do break down. The vast majority do go for Kennedy, uh, sometimes for social and cultural reasons. Some of them have been voting Democratic for generations and generations. He's able to win back some that had gone for Eisenhower before for all sorts of reasons. Again, some related to the Cold War, economics, so on and so forth. Um, but there's still that minority of Catholics who are either concerned that Kennedy is taking taking too much of the religion out of politics uh, or vice versa, trying to take um, politics out of values that should be promoted on the public square. Um, so it does lead to dilemmas for people of all denominations, I would argue. Um, but you know, in the larger scheme of things, um, it, it's very hard to, to brush with, a, uh, with broad, um, brushstrokes. And that's, you know, kind of counterintuitive. And it goes against a lot of the literature on American religion, where it's, you know, the Catholic president supported by Catholics versus mm -hmm. Nixon, who gets a lot of support from just, you know, kind of cartoonish, xenophobic, nativist Protestants, um, when in fact, the portrait, as you were indicating, Simon, uh, is a lot more complex. Um, do we want to keep on the sort of um, 1960 election for now, or do we want to, to move on to, to anything kind of post-1960? I mean, we'll kind of probably come back to it anyway with, um, with some counterfactuals and the possibility. I think we should move on to the education. Cool. Yeah, yeah right. if I can take that away. Yeah, go for it, Paul. Um, So, Patrick, you've, you've given, given us some context to 
Catholicism and its kind of public perceptions in the post-war period, um, writing a bit high on anti-communist attacks and, and the concerns of the atheist e uh, Eastern Bloc and all of that. Um, and you also mentioned that it was fairly paradoxical in this time. So I was wondering if you could give us some context to what the US Catholic Church themselves saw uh, or sought rather on a kind of political level with Kennedy coming in. They were kind of emboldened in the 1950s and post-war period. So what was it that they were actually wanting from Kennedy, if anything, in this period? Certainly, so one of the big issues that was brought up actually by Kennedy himself was federal aid to education, um, which was already a treacherous issue, partly because for a lot of states and kind of small government type conservatives, uh, they thought that this was a state level issue. They were concerned about big government and the federal government um, raising taxes and building this huge infrastructure to support uh, what was ultimately um, state jurisdiction. Uh, Kennedy's pitch for aid to education was that we need to, as you were kind of hinting at, uh, we need to catch up to the USSR. So the federal government needs to be truly involved to make sure that we produce the best scientists, the best professors, the best researchers, and so on and so forth. So education was a priority. It was part of his kind of Cold War program as a whole. Um, and since the late 1940s, there had been a battle over which schools get what. So Kennedy from the beginning is arguing, or at least from the beginning of his campaign, his position shifted over time, but from the beginning of his campaign, partly to reassure anti American Protestants, he said that that federal aid to the educational system would only be funneled to public schools. And a lot of American Catholics led by people like Bishop Spellman argued that that aid, that federal aid should go to all schools, whatever um, their status might be, whether it's public or private and private and confessional or den <clears throat> excuse me, denominational. So, and there's their basis for, for arguing for that is to say, look, we have children in school regardless, just because their parents choose for them a God-centered or God-oriented education, that doesn't mean that they should be deprived of the same opportunities as children who are sent to public schools. Um, and they're arguing also on the basis of prior Supreme Court rulings that said that, well, the federal government does have an obligation to provide, or not the federal, but state governments do have an obligation to provide um, safe transportation to school to children who are attending denominational schools. So that means busing would be supported by government regardless of what kind of school the child attended. Um, so there are precedents for saying that uh, religious schools, parochial schools, Catholic schools, um, deserve their fair share of federal monies even though they're technically private and even though their parents have made the very clear decision to take them out of that public school system and we should remember that those public schools are not, um, are not typically supported in the first place by public monies. It's the tuition paid by parents that support them. 
So maybe if those parents want to have their children in a better school or have better resources, they should be willing to pay more in tuition or in fees uh, to those Catholic schools. So this is where the debate mostly occurs originally, but it becomes a much larger constitutional issue as Kennedy enters office and Protestants start wondering, well, okay, he made this lofty pledge about maintaining the separation of church and state. He's made this pledge about, and drawn a line in the sand saying that we would not provide federal funds to Catholic schools. Um, he wasn't singling out Catholics, but the Catholic Church maintained the largest, largest network of, uh, of private schools in the US. So it seemed as though the Catholic issue was really present there. Um, and ultimately, Kennedy, in his first months in office, uh, sets the tone and seeks to live up to his commitment on uh, the campaign trail. And he continues to pledge federal monies only to public schools. And ultimately, there will be a compromise that's hatched be um, behind the scenes. But publicly, Kennedy always remains committed to that position, um, one that was quite treacherous. And it's actually funny because in the fall of 1960, when they're on the campaign trail, Henry Cabot Lodge, who's the Republican vice presidential candidate, actually states that he is in favor of federal funds for Catholic schools. So again, that kind of serves to show that the Nixon campaign and Henry Cabot Lodge were all in for, first of all, finding some sort of compromise with Catholics, but also reaching out to Catholic voters. Um, and it's kind of ironic that the Protestant Republican ultimately supports money for parochial schools. And actually Nixon has to rein him in and you know, considers that a campaign blunder. While the Catholic is kind of standing up to the Catholic church and saying, no more funds for Catholic institutions. Right. Um... Is there any other questions around this kind of area or are we wanting to move on to uh, civil rights or where should we where should we take this conversation do you think i think i think this is really interesting again it it, it does seem to nail down that kennedy was actually quite secular in his in mm -hmm. his perspective and in many um, different areas yeah but then i guess i would take it to the international relationship with between kennedy and um, the foreign policy perspectives of the United States at the time. You, you say in your book that um, Eisenhower and John Foster Dulles, who had ran uh, United States foreign policy, had really seen the, the battle between communism and America as a, as a religious battle. In many ways, the, the communists had um, made that out themselves because they, they had been explicitly anti-religious and ran campaigns all over Eastern Europe, you know, de-Christianizing. But you say that, that Kennedy and Kennedy's cadre didn't see that, um, that battle in the same way? Is that, is that true? Uh, it's again, <clears throat> excuse me, it's again a, a fairly um, ambiguous um, approach that they, they adopt in international relations. On the one hand, they draw a very hard line with regard to Cuba. Um, a situation in which they inherit, um, but that ultimately they have to make their own. Um, but at the same time, Kennedy sees other opportunities and he recognizes that it can all be about bluster and um, brinksmanship. He's looking at opportunities in South America where likely future revolutions would occur um, as they had occurred 
in Cuba and an attempted uh, revolution in Guatemala as well. So he's looking at South America, for instance, and finding that one of the big sticking points and one of the largest radicalizing factors uh, when it comes to communism is corruption. And a lot of regimes that are still clinging to old aristocratic oligarchical models um, that shut out a lot of poor people from public life. So he's genuinely interested in supporting and working with reform governments, liberal democratic governments in uh, South America, which is not to say that it is a, a perfect record in that regard. Um, there is, you know, when rubber meets the road, the reality is uh, Kennedy is willing to support dictatorships if those are at the moment the best bulwarks, bulwarks against um, against communism. So it is a mixed record. We see very clear signs of hope, um, and he very all he also uh, gives very clear signs to democratic governments that um, theirs is the way to go, and they need to continue making reforms to bring more people into the political conversation because ultimately it's the fate of capitalism versus communism and democracy versus tyranny, as they might've put it, uh, that is at stake in these reforms. So there's a little bit of everything, honestly, in, in Kennedy's uh, approach to the Cold War. Um, and we start hearing a lot less about the missile gap once he's in office for perhaps for, for obvious reasons. Um, and I think that one of the key moments is when he goes to uh, Vienna and meets with Khrushchev, um, who is all bluster, right? As we might as we might recall, and that has a very sobering effect on Kennedy. And his for a time his lofty optimism dissipates, but ultimately he's willing to strike a bargain with Khrushchev as he would over um, uh, missiles and armament. Um, and I'm referring to the nuclear test ban treaty here. So all this kind of serves to show that Kennedy is pragmatic as he is in domestic policy. He's very willing to change his attitude in the wake of new information. Um, he's malleable, he's flexible. And, you know, today that would be considered a liability where parties reward ideological purity and you know you're not allowed to be wishy-washy because you know the media is going to get your people in your own party but kennedy evolves considerably and is always willing to to adjust and adapt and so in trying to make sense of his approach to the cold war it's very hard to pin down and that's partly why historians still disagree as to what his approach in vietnam was or what it would have been had he lived uh, to the end of his term or had been in office for a second term. So there's still a lot of question marks surrounding that. Oliver Stone told me that he would have gone out of Vietnam immediately. That's that's what I that's what I heard from Oliver Stone. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> but um, but yeah, and, and again, this is it. It it really comes out in your book. The Kennedy is really. A liberal because again the the catholic perspective on this is that even even more than the protestant perspective that that communism needed to be defeated that um catholics uh, around the world especially in areas of geopolitical significance to the united states at that time were protecting um sort of the the old order as you say protecting um a, a, even dictatorships as long as they remain bulwarks 
against um, communism, but, but, but Kennedy isn't particularly attached to that. He, he even had, develops a relationship with the, with the Vatican. But again, that, that relationship with the Vatican is expedient. So yeah, that, that, you know, this, this, this Catholicism that Kennedy had doesn't, again, it doesn't really seem to strike out as particularly important to the decisions that he makes. Yeah, I would agree. Um, generally speaking, um, he, he certainly knows, he undergoes an education religiously um, over the course of his administration, and he starts to understand his religious constituencies and knows with whom he can actually work, uh, which religious actors can help to support his agenda. Um, when he does clearly identify himself with church teaching, it's at an opportune moment when finally Pope John gives him the tools to work with. So finally, when he sees something in the Catholic canon in dogma that he can work with, that he can see himself in, that's when he fully asserts himself publicly as a Catholic, uh, puts on the mantle of, of true Catholicism. But that's after two years of keeping that distance and reassuring Protestants of engaging in that hard work of showing that he can be a uh, sorry a president not a Protestant for all people but a president for all people. Um, although a lot of Catholics would have said, yeah, he's going a little bit too far. And um, some actually wrote that he was bending over backwards. Those are the terms he used. Uh, they used to say that um, he was trying to please Protestants more than Catholics. Um, but finally, in the spring of 1963, as I say. Um, building on the encyclical Pacem and Terrace, he's willing to associate himself very directly with, um, with the pontiff, with John the, the 23rd, and to show himself as a dedicated Catholic. But that's probably because, again, Pacem and Terrace highlights values that he can identify with instead of the old um, kind of saber-rattling uh, Catholicism of the old, early Cold War, Cold War or Catholicism that, again, had been associated with uh, politicking against uh, lotteries and birth control and working towards censorship in, locally in a lot of American states. Um, we're coming up to the hour now. Um, it's probably worth touching on sort of civil rights and that kind of thing. Is there anything else we'd like to touch on before we move on to that? Um, well, I they kind of follow on very well. Yeah. Um, so Patrick, the uh, Pope's encyclical, the Pachamenteris, it one of the most notable features is that it condemns the racial discrimination as just incompatible with Catholic teaching. And JFK very famously said, as a Catholic, I'm proud of it. And as an American, I've learned from it. Um, could you lead us through as you said earlier, his kind of wishy-washy stance on civil rights and uh, whether the Pope's encyclical had any sort of impact on his civil rights um, policies at all. Yeah, great question. Um, so to backtrack a little bit in terms of, mm -hmm. <laughs> to use that same regrettable expression, wishy-washy, um, mm -hmm. some might say pragmatic, so much he wishy washy. So um, he's, you know, he needs to score from the moment he enters the White House 
clear domestic uh, victories to say that he's lived up to his mm-hmm. um, uh, his campaign pledges. Um, and at the moment, or in the moment, that means keeping the white southern base of the Democratic Party satisfied, one that had historically been associated with segregation. So he understands that he needs to keep these guys, since they're predominantly guys, on board uh, long enough to score some of those key victories. Um, And we suspect that that's partly why he uh, kind of staggers on civil rights early on in his presidency, and a lot of people are disaffected after making bold claims on the campaign trail and working to get Martin Luther King released from jail. Uh, you know, after all this, there's a lot of disappointment. Um, but ultimately, he's forced to act not because necessarily of personal conviction, although it's pretty clear that he was more progressive on civil rights, and even a lot of Northerners were at that point. Um, so it's not necessarily coming from a place of personal conviction when the turnaround actually happens, um, nor is it because Pachamanteras, for instance, is suddenly released and he feels mm-hmm. impelled or inspired to act on civil rights as a result of it. Um, he is pushed by African-Americans and a small contingent of white allies who are pushing and pushing and pushing and who've had enough after a century of delay and a century of, um, of segregation, oppression, lynchings. Um, this new phase begins actually in 1960 during the uh, election campaign with the sit-in movements led by the, the SNCC in uh, the Carolinas. Um, and it broadens, it builds. Soon enough, you have the freedom rides. Soon enough, you have clashes um, all across the deep south and most famously by, famously by 1963 in Birmingham. But um, we tend to forget that when Kennedy calls for decisive civil rights legislation in the late spring and early summer of 1963, these are not the first, um, these are not the first public statements he makes about the moral character of the quest for racial justice and racial equity. Um, He actually does so in February of 1963, as uh, even before the Birmingham movement kicks off. And that's partly as a result of other events happening um, in the Deep South. There's the Albany campaign that's led by Martin Luther King, where for the first time clergymen, white clergymen specifically, um, join King and other African-Americans on the streets in acts of civil disobedience. So that begins in 1962. And in January 1963, there's a national conference on race and religion that's held in Chicago, where famously, um, Sergeant Shriver attends and speaks. And Sergeant Shriver is Kennedy's brother-in-law. And he's kind of acting as an informal ambassador for the administration at that conference. And that conference is meant to just chart a new course and push for um, faster progress on civil rights and there are people of all denominations at that large conference, again, held in Chicago, um, white, black, uh, people of not quite every you know, ethnic background, but almost. Um, so it's a very ecumenical affair. Shriver comes back to Washington, and of course, it's entirely discussed within the White House. And by the next month, February, 
Kennedy uh, puts out a very early form of that civil rights bill that's going to come back uh, in a much more um, decisive way with a bill that actually has teeth in June. So that's proposed, again, early 1963, before the Birmingham campaign. But the Birmingham campaign and the striking image of you know, police turning dogs and fire hoses upon peaceful protesters, uh, that's going to change American public opinion. And that's what forces, what forces uh, Kennedy to finally act. And I think that he was speaking from a place of conviction when he made that famous address to the Nation on Civil Rights in June 1963. Uh, but he had to be led there politically by larger forces. Um, I've got two or three questions myself for Patrick, uh, which are kind of maybe going off on tangents a little bit. Is there anything else specifically that we'd like to um, ask Patrick while well, we've still got him here before I uh, start going down rabbit holes? <laughs> no, I'm good. That was brilliant. Thank Correct. you. Right. Um, so uh, the, the first question, unsurprisingly, is going to be a Nixon one. Um, in, in, the, in the book, you do talk a little bit in, in, in chapter one and kind of speculate about what what might have been if Nixon had won the election rather than um, JFK. Do you think we would have seen a radically different America? I know it, it's kind of touched on the book and it's kind of stated elsewhere that they're kind of on a policy level pretty identical. Do, do you think do you think we would have seen anything radically different or do you think it would have been just slight differences here and there? Do you think we would have seen uh less separation of church and state with Nixon in charge. I was wondering on the kind of, you, you briefly touch on it at the end of one of the chapters. I was wondering if you could expand a little bit more on that. Certainly. Um, and I think that, you know, if we're going to call Kennedy uh, wishy-washy, maybe the term for Nixon is slippery. Um, <laughs> but that's, that's at least to say that they're, they're both pragmatic. Um, just because he's sweaty, you call him slippery. Yeah, just, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're used to this kind of slander. Uh, <laughs> I love this. We invite you on our podcast. And this is... <laughs> no, on, fair, yeah. on you go, Patrick. So. <laughs> so, and I don't mean that in, in actually any bad sense. Both were, you know, very um, acutely aware of the, the general political climate of the country. And they were both political animals and had incredible political savvy. Um, I mean, there's, you know, we can rank, you know, Kennedy and Nixon as some of the perhaps top political operatives of the 20th century. They're certainly in the same league as much as Nixon would bristle. <laughs> Just getting so, stuck in there with a the rich boy, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so with regard to Nixon, so Nixon would have been in a position politically to make far more concessions to the Catholic Church. And I would not have been surprised in this hypothetical world uh, to see Nixon, a Nixon elected in 1960, mm -hmm. um, actually extend very quickly uh, federal aid to parochial schools, um, which Nixon, or sorry, Kennedy felt incapable of doing perhaps mostly for political reasons. Mm -hmm. And there's a reason why Colonel Spellman and a lot of other bishops within the American church, um, I could name, for instance, James McIntyre, um, the Bishop of Los Angeles. These are 
hardcore conservatives who support the Republicans partly for because they see in the Republican Party their own conservative values, uh, but it's also because they have a sense that Nixon can go further uh, politically in supporting the church than Kennedy can, because again, by early 1961, religion is still the third rail, or Catholicism maybe specifically still the third rail. Um, and I think that Henry Cabot Lodge's statements on the campaign trail hinted at that, the willingness to work with the Catholic Church. That being said, I don't think that would have been enough to publicly address the issue of anti-Catholicism and whether Catholics can truly enjoy every right and freedom and privilege offered by the Constitution and American values in general um, as ultimately happened under Kennedy. Kennedy forced that conversation. And again, oftentimes that was in spite of his own interests and his own desires. Uh, he did not want to talk about religion, which ultimately did, I think, undermine his campaign more than it aided him. Um, then again, it was a very close election, but Kennedy forced a conversation. He pulled a lot of old lingering rhetoric that had been kind of circulating secretly in certain uh, circles and pulled it out into uh, the public square, the public realm, and forced Americans to confront that and to ask a very hard question of American Protestants and ask them, again, quite pointedly, do you believe in equal opportunity? Do you believe that this is you know, a constitution for a nation built specifically for one faith? Um, and do you believe that Catholics take their orders, that they're these kind of mindless robots who are just following every order mm -hmm. as a knee-jerk reaction, or not a knee-jerk reaction, but automatically, um, the moment that it's handed down through God, uh, or sorry, from God through popes and bishops and priests. So he, he forced the conversation. So ultimately, in terms of thinking about the long-term prospects for Catholicism and Catholics in the United States, it's very hard to gauge, um, you know, whether a Nixon administration would have been um, more beneficial. But I think that Kennedy had the advantage of showing by his own, by winning first and foremost, and then through his deportment in office to show that Catholics can live up to the, the expectations and the, the specific strictures of the American Constitution. So I think that ultimately Catholics benefited from his example, as well as simply being inspired to take a, a greater part in American politics and feel fully included. Um, and even as I was mentioning earlier, other groups benefited from that as well, including uh, the Jewish community. Um, now, you know, in terms of non-religious matters, whether America would have been much different um, under or even federal policy as a whole would have been far different under Nixon administration. Um, if Nixon's actual administration is any indication, I think it would have been also fairly pragmatic and mm -hmm. middle of the road. Um, you might have already sort of touched on this bit, bits and pieces. Um, my next question was kind of going to be on on legacy and and, and how the nineteen sixty election kind of shaped not just this idea that, you know, a Catholic could win, but um, what we later see um, later on in the 20th century and now in the 21st century, where there's maybe less of a divide, at least politically, between Catholics and Protestants, and we're kind of, we, we have this more sort of general Christian term 
um, that they often kind of get lumped into as, as far as uh, sort of political um, will and political aims are concerned. Do you Wait, think- Simon, just before that, I mm-hmm. want to ask a question because I think the legacy question sort of book bookends this, but I want to ask one more question. And the question is, in, in your book, you touch on William F. Buckley oh, and yeah. um, Gordon Mann at Yale and Buckley wrote that in 1951 and, and his essential thesis was that, you know, liberal institutions like universities were taking the country away from religion. And but do you think that because you talk about Kennedy and he seems like, you know, a bright guy, a very liberal person, someone who's quite pragmatic. But do you think that Kennedy perhaps took the country away from, uh, you know, the the sort of the, the, just the general religious tenor of the, the country in the, in the 1950s or something else? Because we, we were talking about, you know, to what extent was Kennedy, um, you know, Catholic in terms of foreign policy, in terms of education, and uh, in terms of the political campaign. And he doesn't really seem to be particularly Catholic, and it doesn't seem to inspire his policies that much what about the other way do you, do you think Kennedy was actually a secularizing force in American life in some respects he was partly because he tried to compartmentalize faith and politics now whether he did that out of conviction or because he had to do that for his own political survival or political gain you know, at this point, again, I'm not entirely sure. He's a very hard person to decipher, to scrutinize. Um, but I will point your, your audience in a few directions. So the first is with the, the idea of civil religion. So civil religion, is, you know, it's a term and a concept that dates from the 18th century. But it's the idea that the nation is guided by very broad, almost amorphous, religious values that it doesn't really matter which religion you belong to as long as you recognize certain eternal truths uh, or certain eternal values or principles that are provided by some sort of almighty. So again, it's very, very broad. Um, And in the late 1960s, Robert Bella wrote a famous essay on civil religion in America. And his case in point was Kennedy. And he argued that Kennedy embodied this tradition that had begun at the time, you know, if not of the revolution earlier, passing through Lincoln, who did not belong to any specific church, but was a person, a Christian of faith, running all through Kennedy and who knows, maybe even beyond, where all Americans could um, support this broad amorphous faith, take part in it, um, and it actually served to nourish their patriotic credentials. It was part of the identity, the fabric of the United States. And again, Bella's main case study is Kennedy. And he argues that Kennedy embodied perfectly this spirit where it's broad, tolerant, pluralistic, but it is a civil religion nonetheless. So Kennedy is not taking God out of American politics or the American nation at all. And his involvement, Kennedy's own involvement, at the presidential prayer breakfast is an indication of that. So he's not trying to dismiss religious concerns. Um, in fact, he's more than eager to connect with the religious activists that share his values. So even though he's a compartmentalist when it comes to his own 
values and political behavior, um, strategically, pragmatically, he's willing to reach out to religious groups that, that share his vision. So he's not saying, you know, religion needs to be taken out of politics entirely or vice versa. Um, that being said, so for the kind of the, the caveat, I suppose, in 1962 and 1963, the Supreme Court rules on um, whether prayers can be constitutionally held in public schools and whether teachers, public school teachers, can expect their students to read from the Bible, again, in a public school setting. Um, and in both cases, the Supreme Court says no. So it rules as unconstitutional, these two practices, that in, again, a lot of public schools, publicly funded schools, um, had served to bolster a broad Christian identity, um, especially in parts of the country that were entirely monolithic from a religious point of view. Um, so you basically had, you know, a Baptist or Methodist or Presbyterian vision advanced in public schools. Um, so that was ruled to be discriminatory. And Kennedy, whereas, you know, both of these rulings create such a, uh, an outpouring of anger and disappointment and people start thinking that, well, the country is secularizing and we're losing our edge in the Cold War. And these are the, the religious principles that have animated the country from the beginning. Kennedy takes a different take um, or different stance. And he uh, enjoins all Americans to respect the, the, um, the constitutional uh, rulings of the Supreme Court. And he says that the best way to address this issue and to, you know, to channel our disappointment with these rulings is to recommit to our faith or to our respective religious values in our churches, in our homes. And all these statements are, are such as to kind of confine religion to places that are outside of the public square and well beyond the purview of American tax dollars. So it's almost as though he's trying to usher public expressions of religion outside of at least, you know, <laughs> government buildings, which schools are. Um, so we can take that in a few different ways, partly because a lot of people are then calling for a constitutional amendment. And Kennedy will never support a constitutional amendment um, that would enable, that would basically change the law of the land and enable public schools to teach from the Bible or to, I don't know if that's the best word, but to say enforce um, prayers in school. So whereas that movement gains law support, ultimately doesn't pass Congress to support for um, a, a constitutional amendment. Um, Kennedy is not willing, it could have been a very popular stance on his part, but he never commits to it. Uh, so again, he's, <laughs> he's, he seems to be willing to accept that religion cannot have the same role in the public square um, in politics that it used to have, but he's not saying that people's own individual religious values should not guide their uh, political behavior. Um, so just moving back to the um, sort of legacy question then, do you think, do you think there, there is a real legacy from the 1960 election? And do you think the kind of more unified um, sort of Christian um, entity, I guess, for lack of a better word, 
Um, do you think we can kind of see a little bit of that starting with the 1960 election and this acceptance of a Catholic being president? Or do you think that kind of came later um, with uh, other reasons behind it? Sure. So I think that uh, maybe I wouldn't draw it all the way back to uh, the campaign of 1960. And certainly there are a lot of divisions within religious denominations that are already out in the open. Uh, mm -hmm. It takes a few years into Kennedy's time in office for those to burst forth over issues of civil rights, um, uh, foreign policy, uh, the war in Vietnam will obviously create a deep social and ideological divide within the United States. Um, and again, a lot of these denominations will splinter, not merely for you know, purely theological or intellectual reasons, but because of people's cultural background um, and what their values are and whether they live in the middle of Kansas or the middle of Massachusetts or Alabama uh, and so on and so forth. But the splintering does occur over the course of the 1960s uh, between the liberal elements of a lot of denominations and the conservative elements. And they start charting their own distinct trajectories. And you have people like um, Eugene Carson Blake, who's the rather famous at this time, leader of the United um, Presbyterian Church in the United States, um, who's willing to partner again with Catholics, with Jews, um, with people of different faiths, regardless, so long as they agree on basic values of human and social justice, um, disarmament, um, a, a very kind of liberal and progressive vision, and you have other people and other denominations charting a different course in a more conservative direction. So without saying that uh, Kennedy is the um, kind of the agent of the mm -hmm. entire transformation of the whole political landscape of the late 20th century, I don't think that those differences burst out until he makes very specific policy decisions regarding civil rights and foreign relations, for instance, mm -hmm. and until the country has confronted the issue of Catholicism, because yeah. those partnerships are really cemented once a lot of even mainline Protestants are reassured that Catholics are actually safe to work with, and they're inspired by Kennedy's example, and they yeah. find in Kennedy somebody who's trustworthy. Um, so I think that those divisions really start occurring uh, meaningfully in his wake uh, following Kennedy in the late 60s and 70s. Fantastic. Um, does anyone else have any questions for, for Patrick? Um, anything else to add before we, we close up? Okay, sounds like, <laughs> sounds like we're right. done. Oh, sorry, go on, you go. Yeah. Oh, no, I was going to say, I think I'm good, unless we wanted to touch on the fact that Biden is the second Catholic president. Yes, um, you. we absolutely could. Um, have you got a particular frame of that question in mind? Or would you just like Patrick to speak about your, your favourite president? Uh, Ew, don't president. do that. <laughs> <laughs> he's, my, he's my favourite president. Yeah, don't do that. Don't pin that on me. <laughs> um, framing this question. Um, mm, any ideas come on guys. i was gonna i was gonna say do you well the, the one side that you could take is um i suppose the contrast between how little was made of joe biden becoming a catholic president this time around compared to 1960 um and then i guess the other question is um 
what, what do you, <laughs> that sounds like a very stupid question do, do you see any um similarities or differences in the way that kennedy approaches his religion compared to how biden approaches his religion in uh in being president so pick either of those questions and go, go from the top as far as i'm concerned um right okay or or you can pick something else but that, that's just no question. those are good questions those are sorry patrick um no no, no, no. we're just workshopping as we go yeah fine. yeah we i'm enjoying this yeah. i i remembered that biden is the second because i don't as we were talking i was like is there another catholic president and i <laughs> couldn't think of one and then i was like oh the one we have right Your now boy. right um okay so right i guess in terms of legacy um one other question that i would have is about the current president joe biden he is the second catholic president that we've ever had um would you say that the kind of road to the presidency was quite different um, for Biden as a Catholic president, mm-hmm. as it was for JFK in 1960? I would say so uh, considerably, thanks in part to Kennedy himself, mm. uh, I would argue who's, who went through the process well before Biden did um, and was a pioneer and cleared a lot of obstacles in a way that Al Smith hadn't done for, for Kennedy in 1960. Um, and it, it, you know, we should remember that, you know, there have been other Catholic nominees. Um, actually, there's been one, John Kerry in 2004, took mm-hmm. 44 years for any party to nominate mm-hmm. uh, a Catholic at the top of the ticket again. Um, another kind of liberal-ish senator from Massachusetts, uh, John F. Kerry, actually. <laughs> um, so, and we've had a lot of Catholics since then. Uh, operating at the upper tier of American politics. Um, so as early as 1964, there is a, vi- a Catholic vice presidential candidate, and that's on the Republican ticket. So Barry Goldwater's running mate, William Miller, who's now you know a historical footnote at best. Um, <laughs> he, he was a Catholic. A marginal and, figure's marginal figure. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> He got, he certainly got his 15 minutes, uh, <laughs> but no more. Um, so yeah, he was a Catholic from upstate New York. Um, and when RFK, when Bobby Kennedy runs for the Democratic nomination in 1968 and almost has it sewn up when tragically he's assassinated, um, during his primary campaign, Catholicism doesn't come up at all. Um, and since then, mm. some of the most conservative Supreme Court justices, um, including Scalia, um, Alito, um, I believe Clarence Thomas is a Catholic. Um, they've all, these icons of conservatism have mm-hmm. been, uh, have all been Catholics. Paul Ryan, who was a vice president mm-hmm. as well, also Catholic. Newt Gingrich, I think, converted to Catholicism. So all that to say that you know, it's kind of been put to rest because at the upper echelons of both parties, you've had very uh, prominent um, and very patriotic Catholics as well. So that issue has largely been put to rest from a purely ideological perspective. I think there's a similarity in the sense that the questions being put by Catholics themselves, by bishops, um, you know, between Kennedy and Biden are very similar, even if the specific issues are different. 
which mm -hmm. is to say that in 1960, it is about federal aid to education and whether Kennedy can be truly committed to his church and kind of do it some political favors. And in 2020, 2021, um, the lines of debate have shifted. It's no longer about, you know, taxpayer dollars. It's about more cultural and social issues like mm -hmm. abortion and whether Biden can, mm. um, you know, can receive communion while publicly for political reasons and because it's a pluralistic country um, opposing a ban on abortion. So again, different issues, but it's kind of interesting that in both cases, some of the toughest questions being put to these two Catholic figures are coming from Catholics. Mm -hmm. Right. Thank you for that, Patrick. I know Vaughn is, um, she's currently writing her book about Joe Biden, so th those were very useful. <laughs> <books for her>. <laughs> uh, <laughs> of course, yes. Um, Toby, is there anything you'd like to add on your, your personal saviour, Joe Biden, who you've become a bigger and bigger fan of over the last um, few weeks, or anything on JFK before we finish up? Um, yeah, yeah, I, I think um, Biden is a better president than JFK already. And, I mean, it's <laughs> <laughs> more <cool>. iconic. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, yeah, Patrick, do you think that it's at all strange? Because, you know, from my reading of your book and from that election, it does seem like a lot of the congressional, you know, the, the presidential but congressional district fights were won on, you know, the, the, the fact that Catholics were voting a particular way already or um, things like that sort of uh, struck already structural political issues that weren't necessarily religious. But then the Kennedy presidency opens up the possibility of these religious fights on foreign policy, on 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 education, and Kennedy has to go through this by being sort of secular and, and developing a sort of civic religion. But there are problems, you know. Even the the, the communism versus um, the, the Catholic Church. Some Protestants actually think that the the, the Catholic Church is, is is much of a threat, you know, led by a, a single figure, as much as a threat as as communism but those issues seem to be very very far away from us today but do you think it's particularly interesting or at all relevant that the the, the really religious president comes you know um, Jimmy Carter comes from a more ba Baptist uh, tradition do you think in the 70s despite the fact that Kennedy had done all this work to make Catholics uh, a part of the sort of normal or cultured um, American, do you think that it was at all possible that the religious revival in the 70s could have come from the Catholic and been dominated by Catholics? Or do you think that even in the 70s, Catholics had not reached that level where, you know, the, the level that we have now with, um, you know, Scalia and Clarence Thomas, where the Catholic Church could be a, 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 an essential political force in American life instead of just being hidden under someone like Kennedy who was more secular? Gosh, that's, a, that's an amazing question um, and a tough one. Um, so a few, a few things. Um, in the 1970s, uh, we should recall that the evangelical reaction to rulings on abortion are not instant. Catholic reactions to the same ruling are. So Catholics are at the vanguard of the reaction against Roe v. Wade at a time when that is barely a blip on any 
evangelical fundamentalists political map. Um, it's only at the end of the 1970s, um, as um, Randall Balmer has, has quite helpfully explained, um, and in the 1980s, that evangel evangelicals actually join Catholics on that train and are willing to make a fight of abortion. Um, and that's pushed um, partly by um, Jerry Falwell, who's kind of moving towards Phyllis Schlafly um, and kind of enjoining other Protestants to make this a cultural battle. So Catholics are certainly very active and Catholics are, um, are quite divided uh, amongst themselves over Vietnam, over contraception, over abortion. Um, and so, you know, my way of approaching this question would be to wonder about the internal dynamics of each of these different religious camps. So um, evangelical fundamentalism in the United States is undergoing its own transformation in this era, in this era, partly because it is predominantly from the South and it has to struggle against adaptation um, to a new non-segregated world. Um, and we know that not all people, and I don't want to single out just the South or single out evangelicals, but there's a very clear overlap in those two groups um, in regard to segregation. And so they have to find their own path on that very specific issue as Catholics have to find their own path. So each of these groups is, is trying to find itself. And it's especially difficult for Catholics who um, are suddenly feeling new divisions in the wake of Vatican II, the Second Council of the Vatican in the 1960s. Um, and some of their responses to those reforms of the Catholic Church um, are seen politically, are reflected politically. So in terms of thinking why a you know, strong, united Catholic action in politics doesn't happen in the 1970s and kind of teeters in the 1980s. It might just be that Catholics themselves have, see, have sown the seed of division in their own ranks um, and cannot come to form the same type of political bloc that evangelicals, evangelicals would form, partly due to regional concentration but also greater ideological uniformity. That's right. That's a really, really great answer. Yeah, that was a great question and a great answer. Um, right. I think that's us uh, close enough today. We've already taken an hour and a half of your time, uh, Patrick. So um, thank you so much for joining us. And um, just a reminder that his book, uh, John F. Kennedy and the Politics of Faith is available now. Um, yeah, Patrick, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Um, Right, from, from Patrick, from myself, Simon, and from Toby and Vaughn, um, thank you very much for joining us today. We will have another episode for you in the near future. Um, take care. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. And normally I just ask Toby a random question to check his uh, mic level. So, Toby, wh what are your thoughts on the 1960 election and why do you think JFK felt he needed to steal it? Oh, I think... <laughs> He's, you know, he's a rich kid and he just wanted to, he just wanted to hurt Nixon more, you know, <laughs> Nixon and go to Harvard. Or, he didn't have all these connections. I, th I think, I think Kennedy saw that he saw, he saw Nixon's emotional vulnerability and just wanted to score, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It wasn't even about the, the election. It was just, it was just about, about building Nixon, I think. Yes. <laughs> it's pretty clear Nixon is definitely the victim of, uh, of injustice throughout history.